Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Sean. Marco. Did you see? You usually say Marco first, but I beat you on that. I one. know. Well, we, uh, we're switching things up now for episode two. Yeah. Uh, the introduction. And we're, we're probably testing people's alertness to uh, <laughs> who, who's introducing who. <laughs> well, you're scaring people now. They're probably thinking <laughs> you're going you're gonna to do it, run a test to see who listened to the first That's episode. Right. There is that. If you haven't heard the first one, uh, we certainly encourage you to do so. We'll we'll probably cross over back into that a little bit, but there's so much to cover. For sure. uh, Probably not too much. Yep. We are back talking with our partners and friends in the Redefining Society's uh, channel of ITSP Magazine. And we're going to talk again about the High Alert Institute. And there's not really... Again, because there is so much <laughs> that they do that we're actually <laughs> taking taking uh, smaller episodes to go over everything. And I want to start with uh, having a quick introduction of uh, uh, Alison and Maurice. Uh, They're here with us again. And uh, and then we'll go in a little recap of what was the first episode. So no, no test here. We'll, we'll give it. We'll do it for you and, and, and dive in what is new this time. So, um Alison and Morris, thank you for uh, being back again on the show. Pleasure to be here, Marco and Sean. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you. Of course, it's family. It's definitely family. So we 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 are, we are expecting a lot of uh, conversation together with you. But again, because not everybody knows uh, everything about you yet, why don't you do a quick uh, re-intro? Not not as large as the first time because we do want people to listen to the first episode but uh alison let's start with you how what's your role into the high alert institute my role at the institute is as executive director and i have held that role since it became a 9 501c3 back in 2011 february of 2011 Sometimes I have to think back because it, <laughs> our origins were 10 years before that uh, on, on, on the for-profit side. So at, at, for our, our mission and our vision has been going on for now 20 years. Um, my background is as a nurse and nurse practitioner. And so a lot of healthcare is brought into the Institute and the things that we do, but not solely. And I'm Maurice Ramirez. I'm an ER and a disaster medicine physician, and I'm the co-founder and the chairperson of the board for the High Alert Institute. Uh, so with, between Allison and myself, we have been at this for well over 30 years, each 20 within the Institute. And uh, we are just thrilled to be with, the, with uh, our ITSP family on uh, Redefining Society. And that's a Excellent and exciting, and it is about redefining society, and even even more than that, because we're talking about society, we think about humans, but here we're talking about animals, the environment, and it's all, again, you use the word family, I'm really happy to hear that, but it's all a whole family that 
the whole globe that we live in. It's all synergy uh, coming together. And I think that's what we're kind of missing when we focus too much on one thing and not the other. So really quickly, uh, in, in our last podcast, the first one, we, we kind of went into an overview of what the High Alert Institute uh, does. As we learned it is divided into three main sections, disaster readiness and education, animal welfare and environmental, and space healthcare and AI informatics. I think we left something out short last time in the space healthcare in AI, but uh, I want to start with the question that probably people think. So, disaster. What? How? How do you define that? I don't know who wants to start with this, but uh, it, I'm, I'm what disaster. is a disaster? Uh, yeah, apart from Sean, which already know. Um, well, for everything well, else. Well, a disaster, most simply put, is when your needs, your immediate needs, exceed all the available resources. So. A disaster, therefore, can be very small. It can be an individual family or a company or a neighborhood that where they not only do they not have the resources in-house, but they can't tap into any resources in their community or their locality to meet that need. Of course, disasters can be larger. They can be community-wide, statewide, regional, even national or global. Uh, but it comes down and in the end to not having enough resources to meet your needs right now. So as you describe those things, uh, Maurice, I, I immediately think, well, how, how does one, I guess if one is in the middle of a disaster, they, they probably realize it, <laughs> recognize it, but maybe not still. But I think a big part of what you do is uh, preparedness for a disaster, knowing what might come, how it might materialize, how you prepare to to uh, fend it off, deal with it if it happens. And to me, that sounds like a lot of education there as well. So can you tell us a little bit about the Institute's uh, disaster readiness and education section? What are you doing there? Certainly. Our disaster readiness slash preparedness, however you wish to say it, uh, section, it, it's, it's evolved from our prior boots on the ground responses that, that we have done in the past. And we've transitioned that uh, lately in the most recent years to more leadership and guidance, advisory and advocacy roles. And as we started our journey in all of this in the wake of 9-11, our focus was mainly on healthcare and on frontline workers and first responders and all of the educational needs that they would have. But over the years, we've expanded that now to include a, a scope that, in, that is uh, more global in an all hazards, hazards, one framework paradigm that we refer to often. This concept includes all of the folks that, that I've already mentioned, but has expanded to animal welfare organizations, animal welfare workers, environmental causes of all sorts, uh, businesses, families, and individuals. And as you would expect in a one framework construct, the bullet items, if you will, have remained the same over time. And we continue to support, promote, and provide services across a number of different areas. And I'd be happy to talk about a few of those if, if, if that would be all right. Um, Please do. One, uh, I'll go through the list first that's at top of mind, and then perhaps a few examples just to, to flesh that all out would make more sense. We, these bullet items that I referred to are in the realms of education, resources, planning, and then also research and development and promoting awareness and resilience. The first couple may seem a little more straightforward when you're thinking about disasters and disaster readiness, but the other two also have extremely important roles that are growing, not just for us, for us but for many other organizations. And in education, uh, previously we had done a lot of in-person education, lectures, training programs, 
what we've graduated to now is being able to provide a library of education and training materials and videos, and hopefully these podcasts, so that individuals and organizations can get all of the information that they need and for no cost to them. Those budgets of 10 and 15 years ago for, for disaster preparedness and training really don't exist for a lot of organizations nowadays. And this also helps to remove some of the barriers to access for continuing education that all responders and volunteers need and to meet any job or legal requirements associated with your volunteer or paid position or within your organization, even when there's no budget to do it. Looking at the resources, in addition to the educational resources, one of our key institute resources is our large complement of subject matter experts. And all of these experts, by the way, volunteer their time and expertise. They really want to share what they know and how they have done things for the common good and for the greater good. For the disaster spe section specifically, we offer our resources to human and animal care organizations so that they are able to serve their own staff and their own communities in the best way possible and without spending precious funds that are needed for other tasks. On the planning side, uh, we have and continue to exist, <clears throat> excuse me, assist disaster readiness and preparedness and planning for many different types of organizations, whether they serve humans or animals or habitats or some combination thereof. We also have shared our knowledge and experience with those who are looking to incorporate disaster readiness or business continuity, because they really are the same type of topic, into their community or organization. In research and development might not be something that people think right away when they're talking about disaster preparedness and response, but supporting research and development of products that can and services that can benefit the greater good is really an important part of all of this. Historically, we've contributed uh, literature resources, um, articles, training materials to, for disaster readiness and response, including a lot of work that we did during COVID-19 and for COVID-19 response. Currently, we're involved with several projects that are crossovers in disaster readiness and climate change, which is its own type of disaster. And again, back to that same one framework concept, everything is interconnected. Just like those Venn diagrams that we all learned how to make when we were in grade school. Mm. <laughs> Promoting awareness and resilience is something I also wanted to mention. And it is one of those bullet items that I mentioned. As we talked about in our podcast last time with you, Marco and Sean, the Institute has been involved in, for many years in disaster behavioral health projects. Over time, our scope in that same category uh, for promoting awareness and resilience has grown. Preventing or reducing the impact of disasters and the risk of those disasters for all people, all animals, all habitats needs to be integra integrated into awareness, education, awareness, training, and planning. And that's what is ultimately able to allow for resilience on a, on a global scale and on a personal scale. That is and a of big course, project yeah. right there. <laughs> All of that together. <laughs> and of course, inter, inter, I would, would be remiss if I didn't mention that integrating uh, diversity, equity, access, and inclusion practices and addressing determinants of health, again, tying back to that whole, our whole history, myself and Maurice and in, based in healthcare, is essential for any awareness and resilience endeavors. Very good. And I'm thinking this, Maurice, if, if as you probably going to describe some more of the, the specific of the project, the one that we didn't cover last time, because I know there are so many, Maybe a little refresh on the, the one framework, if you can summarize it in a few words, what, what, what is the, that goes behind that and into that as you 
as you make it happen and you orchestrate it. Absolutely. Well, all hazards, one framework is the concept uh, and actually the planning and preparation practice of looking at what are vulnerabilities, what are the resources that you will need, regardless of what kind of disaster event or what we in, in, our, in our world calls the disaster scenarios, planning scenarios, are, in, are attacking you at that moment. So you may have a wildfire followed by a mudslide and flooding uh, because wildfires come with their own weather front and eventually result in heavy rains. So you started with one disaster that progressed into two others over, to, over a period of time. If you've only prepared for a wildfire, you aren't ready for the flooding and, and the mudslide that come afterwards because you're working out of a single play playbook. Instead, as Allison alluded to last time, we look at it a lot, lot more as a large three ring binder where we look at what are all the hazards that could occur in your locality. So everything, every disaster is local. So we wanna make certain that your disaster planning, preparation, response recovery, and even education are specific to your needs. And we do then do a risk assessment, look at what resources you will need, what resources will come, will, will come up short for you personally or within your organization, as well as within your community, possibly even at a state or national level, and then try to mitigate that risk by increasing the number of resources. You see this all the time when a natural disaster is coming. For instance, a hurricane headed towards Florida, you'll see days in advance an emergency declaration uh, declared. And what that does is it makes state and federal resources that are not normally available to communities and individuals available ahead of the event. This means that now you can gather your resources. If you have a plan, if you have planned in advance and you know what you're gonna need when something bad happens, you can have that on hand, stocking up on water, food, fuel for your generator, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to keep those things on hand and be and and stockpile them at all times. You can get them in advance. And that's you know when you mean. actually have an heads up, which is a nice thing thanks to technology, that the case of a hurricane or a or that kind of front weather front, but there are other times where um, other situation where you really don't have much of a, of a heads up. I'm thinking like a earthquake or or something like that. Um, can we? Can you go into some of the example of what uh, a program related to disaster readiness and education in the Project for Good uh, framework um, is? Absolutely. A few examples for our audience to really understand how you apply that. Absolutely. Well, as Allison already mentioned, we have our curated libraries of resources, educational links, and educational programs, as well as as a as a fairly vast library of articles that are available in disaster readiness for disaster readiness education, as well as planning and disaster behavioral health. We also have educational programs specifically in disaster behavioral health for several different sectors, including healthcare and animal welfare workers. But more importantly, uh, well, of equal importance perhaps is a better way of saying that, we have a number of inventors and companies that have approached the Institute for help in looking how their products, services, or in some cases, just their intellectual property can have an impact for the greater good. And by looking at these products and services through that all hazards, one framework lens, we've been able to show these companies, these inventors, these individuals, new purposes for and new populations that their great invention, their great service, their great idea can benefit. And in some cases, we help with their development as well. And in fact, we call these companies partners for good. We call the experts that we work with in this realm and others experts for good, because it's all about the good. It's all about that positive global impact. We are truly trying to redefine the concept of what it is to be entrepreneurial in in modern society. We're trying to show people that they can be entrepreneurial and financially successful in a for-profit model and still do good in the world. So, so I don't know who wants to take this, but I'm really curious of how that 
that larger program works with the different parties involved because I mean just just the mention of having fuel on hand and having a backup generator for power and having water um, not everybody has extra money lying around to to buy and stockpile those things may not have stores just to do that um, and then on the flip side when when something bad happens you see stories and hear stories of of people being gouged uh, trying to get those ahead of ahead of an incident and even during and during and after an incident as they're trying to recover from it so how does how does what you do kind of play into that whole world of of having resources available maybe one personally can't handle and, and manage that themselves they rely on others but then the others uh, do it in a way that's uh, ethical and moral and actually helps see the, the the disaster through not add any additional pain well part of what we want to see people and companies and individuals and organizations doing Sean is we don't want to see them stockpiling things that gather dust we we very much tell people that they need to practice or prepare the way they will play. If they're in business, knowing how to get something last minute is more important than keeping eight of them on the shelf. No, having multiple supply chains, knowing that you can purchase the same item from three different vendors, and then looking at, as an example, and then looking at who actually stayed open the last disaster. Local disasters tend to come recurrently. Marco mentioned earthquakes. If you live in an earthquake zone, you know that there's going to eventually be an earthquake. So you do have to look at the risk of that and what you would need to, to get through it at a small quake, you know, hide under the hide, hide in a doorway or underneath of a table. When it's passed, clean up the mess and you're all good. Or a large, a large event uh, where highways collapse and power is out. You mentioned backup generators. Uh, and those are you. You're right. Those are huge expenses, and they're very expensive to operate. They can cost ten. The fuel can cost as much as ten dollars a gallon if you're if you're using propane, and your backup generator could cost you one two hundred dollars a, a day just for a twenty five hundred square foot facility or home. But what you can do is use integrated and hybrid programs. In fact, the institute runs a demonstrator for that exact purpose that we call uh, Good for Planet. It involves solar panels. We have a wind turbine. We have battery backup. We've used all common off-the-shelf technologies, nothing avant-garde, nothing custom-made, things that can be financed as part of a regular green program for a business or a home, add value to the structure, add value to the business or, or, to, or to the homeowner's property value, and pay for themselves over time. So... Our, our green energy system has been in place now for seven years. One half of the, the oldest half of it has already paid for itself. The newer component will be paid for within about three more years, just on the energy savings when we're not having a disaster. That doesn't count the fact that this year, two hurricanes, we've spent $0 on propane. The last hurricane we had before we installed, installed the most recent upgrade to the system, we spent $4,000 on propane. And that was when propane costs during the disaster were $3.99 a gallon. The current price in Florida during the disasters for propane were $9.99 a gallon. And that's not even price gouging. That was market cost at the time. Of course, we also have some other uh, programs in our, in our projects for good, getting back to Marco's question, uh, that are, again, Companies and in inventors who have come to us. One was what we call in, in the uh, IP business, in the intellectual property business, stranded IP. They had a great idea. They had a great, they had had some great initial prototype success, but they hadn't figured out how to move it forward. Uh, and so the company had partially shelved the idea. Uh, but we have a company that is a provider of neuroresilience training. Now, that's a big term, but basically what it means is getting the left and right brain to work on a problem simultaneously. And it's a great training program for people on spectrum and for people with neurocognitive injury, like, like uh, traumatic brain injury in veterans or stroke patients, with particularly stroke patients with aphasia. 
but their program is built into a STEM STEAM program. So the kids learn the, the neural resilience before they ever have an injury, even a concussion, before they ever have a need from a behavioral health standpoint for coping skills. So that when the, when the disaster strikes, and this gets back to that concept of stockpiling, they've actually stockpiled a neurologic pathway that improves their mental and emotional capacity to deal with adversity. Uh, can I can I ask you something about this? It's uh, I'm going to be a little bit uh, critic of society here because I do that, but I don't do, I don't do it in a mean in, in a mean way. But usually, there's need to be money attached to any form of business, and it's what it uh, you know drive our society. Sometimes it's what it drives our innovation right i mean some people they do do it for for the good but sometimes as you said before the business can make money and and do the good do you feel both of you based on your experience that something is actually changing in our society where we do go and really put a higher value on good considering all the way that we have damaged our society and environment and and everything around us. I mean, do you see like a tipping point that our brain start to work in a different way, both for individual with, with disabilities, both for everything, environment and so on? I, I think, Marco, yes. In, in looking at, at scientific literature, at market research literature, we know that, that uh, younger consumers and younger investors, people under the between 20 and 35 years of age, regardless of gender, uh, regardless of race in, in the United States, as well as in the EU, will spend up to 37% more for the same off-the-shelf product if the company's ethos, if their ethics and their impact are consistent with the belief system of, of, the, of the consumer for the purpose of improving either the environment or some other cause, societal good cause that they believe in. When we're looking at projects for good, that's one of the things we look at is, is this a, is this a technology or a service or a product that can be an alternative to something that doesn't have that impact for good? Yeah, one, a couple of, of, of great examples in our in our pro, in our projects for good. Uh, we work with a company called Optrel. Now they make they make welding uh, shields, but they also came up with this great fog-free see-through mask, an N95 level surgical mask, and and it's great for patients. And the thing is that this item, at no real additional cost compared to the the standard orange duckbill mask that every hospital hands out allows people to see the lower half of the face. The lower half of the face is very important. Most emotion, particularly empathy, and that, that, uh, that appearance of not being a threat are conveyed by the muscles below the cheekbones, the very muscles that we cover and have covered during the pandemic with masks. It's one of the reasons that people reject masks so strongly is they can't see the bottom of your face and therefore at a very primal level, they have the concept that they don't know your intent. and They don't know if you're friendly. They feel threatened. This see-through mask allows for, for you to see that somebody smiles. Now imagine, take it away from pandemic and disaster. Imagine being a child on Allison's oncology ward when she was at Yale. Mm. You're, you're surrounded by masks all the time because you're immunocompromised. You never see a face without a mask, sometimes even your own parent. And they're sticking you with needles. And they're doing all kinds of things that as a child, you don't fully understand, even though it's been explained. Now swap that up, change everybody to a mask where you can see a smile, where you can see that this person feels empathy for you. Maybe even a little wince when they stick you. Yeah, that they come in and it's good news. Imagine being that parent and everybody walks in with a mask and you never even know, is the doctor and the nurse bringing good news about my child who's still in surgery? because they walked in with a mask that you couldn't see their face. Now you walk in with a mask and you can't see the face. I was recently a patient. I arrived with my own see-through masks 
the most striking statement was from was from an anesthesiologist who looked at me and said, I love that mask. I know if you're comfortable and doing okay. Mm, wow. Very powerful. No additional cost. And this is a company who came up with this idea just because they happened to have the technology and the materials. And then again, became stranded because they're in the welding industry. What do they know about contacting healthcare or getting this out to, to hearing impaired individuals and special needs teachers or teachers in general in all of our schools in the event that mask mandates come back at some point in the future. And we know sometime in the future, they will. We have yeah, another company, very small company, Pocket Stream, who came up with this great idea. They call it a portable water fountain. It's simply a powered uh, cup with a straw, but it has the ability to pump water at a very comfortable rate for, for hydration but it makes hydration fun. Hydrating kids is one of the most difficult things to do when they're under stress, whether they're, whether it's in a healthcare environment or even in a sports environment. And you see, you see all the time uh, trainers and people squirting water into people's mouths from squeeze bottles. The reality is, is they get very little of that water and it contributes to their hydration. This system is just as easy. You push a button and it pumps until you stop drinking like a real water fountain, but it's portable. Again, they had no idea where to, where to take this awesome, cool invention that they had patented. And we introduced them to disaster workers, to people who have to wear camelbacks or hazmat gear and are going to end up dehydrated because you can't hydrate in most, in most of that gear. But now with this kind of a system, they can. Or rehab centers. I can speak personally from that, that particular need. And again, these are people who are doing the exact same products that they were going to develop anyway, but are looking for ways that it can do more than they ever dreamed and, and touch more people than they ever thought they could help. It's all coming from that. Profit margin's the same. The inventions well, are the same. But what is the impact of those things? And that yeah. no, these are brilliant. Sorry, Alison. I mean, I, I would love to do an entire episode with you and and Maurice about all these invention that you know ingenuity really and and sometimes it can come from people that as they say you know it's it's the need that that the mother of all invention right like you you just see a need and 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 you create a solution and sometimes it's so much more relevant than what you thought it could have been I, I absolutely well, you know what else Marco I'm gonna I want to jump in here yeah go for it what, what, what I'm what I'm taking from this and I, I it's carrying over from the last conversation as well is that we find and maybe both of you can confirm my position on this or tell me I'm full of it but I, I feel that that we find something that works and we apply it and it becomes the common, solution to the problem and then we encounter situations like this uh, where the common run-of-the-mill solution that works 90 percent of the time doesn't really work for some and we expect those that it doesn't work for to kind of adjust or just deal with it and and i want to go because i know we're we're coming close on time here and i want to use this kind of use this message if you will to drive a point around the uh, we, last time we talked about the the uh, freshwater and aquatic animal shelter and aquaponic systems that uh, that you are working with, and I guess pe people think, well, this is I'm doing something good. This this mask is good, um, and therefore we've met the need. And when I'm looking at the the uh, the aquatic uh, situation where somebody says, okay, here's some fish. I need to save them from this disaster. What am I going to do? Well, I need to get them into fresh water. They're freshwater fish. Let me put them in some fresh water. Where's that? Well, that's in the lake behind my house or a pond behind my house or a stream behind my house or, or down the toilet. Cause that's water. <laughs> but th those not, those aren't always the best situation, not just for the fish that are quote unquote being saved, but the impact broader 
that uh, that decision that we think is okay can have downstream, pun intended. So I don't know if, we, if uh, Maurice, if you want to maybe touch on that. I know Allison, you, you discussed it a bit last time as well, but some of the some of the uh, the, the aquatic stuff and animal rescue in in general is a broader broader topic. Well, Sean, you're absolutely correct. A lot of people don't don't know what the other options are, and that's a large part of what the institute does. But then, you know, relative to the aquatic shelter, it's and and our operations there. Yeah, Allison. Well, for us, all of the animal wellness and environmental projects that we're involved in are very much tied to our disaster readiness and education programs and 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 mindset. For administrative or budgeting purposes, they may purposes they may fall into a specific section, but they they really are all overlapped. We're going back to those Venn diagrams uh, again, and yes, we did talk last time about making making choices that are globally minded when it comes to those sorts of things. You said putting your, taking your, you, you, you think you're rescuing a fish from a, 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 a small pond that maybe is, doesn't have enough water and you're going to take them and, and put these in the local lake or a local river, figuring they'll, they're, they'll, at least they'll be okay. You're kind of setting them free without understanding all of the, the repercussions thereof. It, it sounded like kind of where you were going with that, with that, Sean, and that that comes back to uh, an, 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 an education point. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. So w while we're here, and uh, why don't you, uh, Alison, tell us a little bit more about the, the disaster readiness and education section for the uh, aquatic animal shelter? Sure. Uh, On-site currently, we have um, approximately 3,500 gallons of living space for the animals that, that we care for and rescue here. These are non-native aquatics, mostly koi fish and ornamental goldfish that either don't have a place to be, someone, someone may, um, or someone may no longer be able to care for. It all started with with one rescue fish. Uh, we had a friend whose pond actually broke. It was a very small pond, and she didn't have the money to be able to rebuild it and didn't want the animals to die. So she actually drove over here with her animals in a cooler and said, can you please take care of these? We, I know you have... A, a, a tank that is big enough to add my tiny little fish. And it all started with that one fish. Um, what we're looking now to do is because we have learned that this is a need across the United States for rescuing non-native aquatics, have, giving them a place to go for decades of, of, of their lifespan we're raising funds to expand our shelter to uh, 60,000 gallons. We already have it engineered. We already have the, the, the plans all set. We have a, a, a great organization that wants to help us build these ponds. And now we just have to, again, to collect the funds for it, hopefully next year. With this expansion, um, we'll be partnering with several universities to become a model facility for high efficiency aquaculture, which will include the use of renewable energy, something very uh, very much a passion project for the Institute. And also in, in coordination with this, we have a mutual aid compact, essentially a co-op, kind of going back to 1960s language, I suppose, uh, that is working to connect all of these same like-minded uh, freshwater aquatic rescues in the in the continental United States into one co cooperative network. Hey, do you have room for this? Yes, great. Well, we we know of uh, a, a park that is has been lost its funding and it's going to have to close its doors and they've got this big koi pond and no place for the for, for the fish to go. Great. You take you take half, I'll take half, and everything will will have have a home 
and a number of us also have uh, sites within uh, Adopt-A-Pet and certain other places like that where you can actually adopt the koi fish that, that we have rescued or that have uh, been willed to one of the rescues so that they have an, a place to continue in life and don't end up being part of the problem in the rivers and streams and ponds, uh, which then have to get you know, fished out and destroyed. And the co-op also has the opportunity to assist in rehoming these animals, particularly to, to, uh, to uh, aquatic uh, nature preserves and, and, and botanical gardens and aquatic gardens that very much want these animals. But again, we get back to that funding. Koi are not cheap if you have to buy them from a, from a breeder. Uh, very small koi you can buy for $10, $15, $20. And you can go to Walmart and buy koi that you don't know or not, you don't know the progeny of for a few dollars. But then you have to place them in isolation, just like any zoo or aquarium. The problem is with, with, with koi and other freshwater aquatics, isolation period is a minimum of eight weeks. And most facilities just don't have that space. We already have them isolated. Our co-op partners already have them isolated. They've already been certified by vets. They're ready to go and, and go straight into a, straight into a, a uh, public pond or public, public garden or a, a national botanical garden where they can live out their lives and, and possibly keep that facility you know, with spawning fish for decades to come. Yeah, that sometimes we just don't think about everything that goes into one thing. It's like, <laughs> I think well, it's so simple. Exactly. That's why I'm like here listening and, uh, and start saying like, oh, wow, I didn't see that angle. I didn't see that angle. And now, it, now the one framework and the synergy of all of this comes together. So I, I think we, we should start closing here. And maybe uh, I think you, you, you may have something to connect uh, what you just talked about, um, about the, the aquatic animal shelter with a connection with the um, IP for good programs, because it sounds like there is a lot of technology also that can be advanced there. And as you finish doing that, maybe you want to tease it for, for next episode and what we will cover at that point, which I know is going to be very exciting for me. So uh, tell me about it. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, it, in our IP for good, which is our technology transfer program, intellectual property for good, these are stranded technologies. These are th great ideas very, and, and patents. They're already patented ideas that, and we mentioned this last time, have been developed along the way towards some other product, some other service. And then the company that owns the patent or the individual inventor doesn't have a mechanism to get it to market or they don't know where their market exists. And these things aren't free to maintain. Patents cost money to maintain over time. They have to be updated. They have to be kept. They have to be renewed from time to time. And eventually, if you don't develop a market for it, you lose that patent capability. Uh, so we turn it into an opportunity for them to donate the patent to the Institute. And we've had several patents donated. We've had a wind uh, energy conversion system, wind turbine, noise uh, reduction system, we actually installed the prototype here at the Institute. As I mentioned, we have a wind turbine. When we first installed our wind turbine, the wind turbine produced what we expected, about 94 decibels at the measuring distance, at the standard measuring distance, uh, which is not actually that loud. With this system installed, we dropped that to 47 decibels. Significant, so low that the next day while we were doing 24-hour monitoring, suddenly we had a spike in noise. It turned out to be the cicadas. A week later, we had another spike in noise. Turned out to be the frogs that had eaten the cicadas. The week after that, <laughs> guess what? Here come the birds that ate the frogs. And they were all singing and chirping at dawn and spiking our sound. It took us a month to get a full week of sound recordings to demonstrate that this never went above 50 decibels. Because and you work the, your way to the, the snakes. Well, yeah, exactly. We needed, we needed quiet animals. <laughs> You're exactly right, John. <laughs> you just went with the circle of life there. That's right. <laughs> right. The forest was too loud for the wind turbine as opposed to the other way around. <laughs> Simple Incredible. technology that was otherwise abandoned. Uh, 
similarly, we've done, you know, we, we have two projects involving solar PV and hot water that we can talk about at another date. And yeah, then it came when we developed the, the co-op, we also needed a way to move animals. And we discovered that it's very expensive if you want to move fish, even if you're an aquarium, if you're in a commercial aquarium of a zoo to move fish because you have to move them in 24 hours. So sometimes you're flying yeah, 2,000 pounds of water to move an animal. We, we found a company that had a stranded technology that allows the tank to be filtered and aerated uh, and can actually be converted to also be an emergency tank at, for those places like Allison mentioned where their tank is temporarily offline so that, Sean, they don't have to do what you were talking about, where they're going to lose power. They know their fish are going to die in the pond. And so they have to they have to abandon them or dump them in some lake somewhere on their way out of town to their own shelter for humans. They can move those into this, into this container, close it, solar panel on the top, filters it, aerates it. And when they come back, yeah, you know, they have hungry fish, but they have live fish. And for commercial, in, for commercial operations that have fish, that's a big deal. If you're a restaurant and your fish die in that pond, the health department has all kinds of requirements for cleaning before you're allowed to reopen. So in commercial operations, these, this is very important technology. And then the, the, the most recent project we're working on is that we're partnering with several organizations to remove fluorinated hydrocarbons and PFAS chemicals from, in, from uh, contaminated air, land, and surface water, uh, as well as, as eventually aquifers. So this is an environmental remediation project we're very excited about. And uh, on a future podcast, we'll tell you all about it. Yeah, I I think everything you mentioned it, it it's can be a, his own podcast. So I, I'm sure we're not running out of ideas and, okay. and let's topics. just start the next one right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> give, let's let's take those last couple of minutes to kind of tease for what is coming next. And I I, I mentioned before, it's I'm excited about it because I know it's, we're finally gonna get to space space <laughs> healthcare and AI informatics policy yes. section, which is something that Sean and I already uh, discussed here and there, all the ethics of uh, advanced technology and so on. But th there is some aspect here that I know that we already talked in, in private when we were meeting each other that uh, are going to be fascinating. So give us a little tease and then we'll say goodbye till the next episode. Absolutely. So this one's near and dear to both Allison and my heart because we're both Trekkies. We both love the, and we're not, we're not exclusive to, to, to the, to the uh, Trekkie uh, franchises. We also love, love Star Wars and going all the way back to 2001 uh, and, and before that. So the opportunity to work with astronauts, uh, with space healthcare experts to create the frameworks on which all of the, all of the technologies that we will use in space for healthcare and immediate disaster healthcare responses Will be will be based, licensed, and regulated. Uh, one of the interesting things about space healthcare or space law is that, as, as you know, if you saw the movie The Martian, uh, no individual government can extend its authority beyond 90 miles above the Earth's crust. Now, if you're on a spaceship in free space, it's considered it's it's considered international waters. But as soon as your habitat becomes a colony, and there are several markers for becoming a colony. Again, from the movie, you saw that one was raising and harvesting food uh, or printing food with a 3D food printer qualifies you as an independent jurisdiction. You now don't have any laws that authorize healthcare. So we've been asked to assist the International Space Court Foundation. And now we're also working with some of the, uh, of, of the spacefaring nations, uh, actual space agencies to build those frameworks and our experts for good are working there. And that immediately flowed into the concept of AI as a disaster responder. The idea from Voyager, again, I'm back to Star Trek, of the emergency medical hologram. Well, there are a lot of regulations that come into that because it's, is it a medical device or is it a provider? Does it need to become a digital citizen? Very much, uh, very much like the Sophia robot is a, is a actual digital citizen. And, ha and carries a UN passport. What are the regulations and, of course, the legalities? And we've been asked 
to do that. And that's our next pod. That's a big topic of our next podcast. Now, this is going to be our next 60 podcast. There's, <laughs> there is we're so up much. for it, Marco. We're up for it. There is so much. I mean, we're, we're going, I mean, you say Trekkie, uh, we, we ju you just cross into the sci-fi and, uh, and the what if and the real, like putting our thin foil hats and really start thinking about the future. So really, really excited. I'm sure I can speak I for I'm, Sean. I'm, I'm afraid well. we're going to, we're going to take all your time doing podcasts and, and <laughs> not much left for actually doing the, the good, good for society stuff. <laughs> oh, I don't think so. They are, they are on a mission here. There is no, no questions about it. All right. So uh, I'm just going to quickly wrap this. Uh, th thank you again, uh, Alison and Maurice, for uh, going one more step, one more paragraph into, or actually, let's call it a chapter into what this entire Higher Alert Institute does. And um, we're going we're gonna to come back with, with one more, at least to introduce it. And then as we point out and tease a few times here, we will start really digging into this kind of conversation and even make it broader into bringing some guests and some other people that can join these kind of topics on the other society, which is where we have all these panels to really try to discuss the important things that are regarding society and hard to find something that is more important than all the things that, uh, that you have been highlighting and that you're taking care of you're dedicated your life to so thank you very much well you're very welcome marco and sean and i very much look for forward to uh showing you how we can take a one framework paradigm to the moon to the mars and beyond ah beautiful that's it that's it i'm gonna cut it right here goodbye everybody stay tuned for another redefining society episode thank you very much BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. <laughs>